Welcome to episode 101 of Positive Regression, a motorsports analytics podcast. I'm Alan Kavana, joined as always by David Smith. On this episode, we start our new series of historical deep dives into drivers, owners, events, whatever we feel like. We're also looking hard at hit stops this season, who's good, and ask if they really matter. All that plus our in-depth Darlington preview. So, David, let's begin. It is episode 101 of Positive Regression. It's a new era, and we are starting with deep dives this episode into the 1988 spring race in Darlington, won by none other than Lake Speed. Now, David, we don't talk about Lake Speed, Cup Series winner, all that much, but this win was no fluke. That day, he led 178 laps. He defeated Alan Kowicki, Davey Allison, and Bill Elliott in that order. David, why did you pick this race? Well, we are heading to Darlington, and I think this sort of stands out as one of the great upset wins in Darlington's storied history. I think that's fair to say. But, you know, you use the word fluke. You said it's no fluke. I think that's correct. And it's because being a one-time Cup Series winner it sort of hangs a blanket designation on a driver. And I'm not sure that that's fair. Being a one-time winner can actually mean a number of different things. It can mean that a driver's win uh, was indeed a fluke. It can mean that the driver's win was the only time everything finally came together for one day. And it can mean the driver typically had subpar equipment uh, and one win for a career is just above zero wins, which is the most likely outcome for backmarker equipment. I would place Lake Speed somewhere in between the final two that I mentioned. It had elements of both of those. Uh, I'll go into detail here, but primarily Lake Speed's win in 1988 at Darlington took place because of three reasons. Firstly, he was one of a few drivers to comprehend the advantage Hoosier tires offered over Goodyear tires. You've talked about this. You love the tire wars mm-hmm. when, when that was the thing. This was 1988. It was the height of the tire war. Goodyear uh, had a harder but more reliable tire. Hoosier had a softer compound, which meant more grip, higher speeds, higher unreliability. Now, Early in 88, Neil Bonnet won at Richmond on a Hoosier tire. Everybody took notice. And while, yes, teams had agreements going into the season uh, in place with the two different tire manufacturers, let's call a spade a spade. These contracts were essentially written on napkins, right, for for all (laughs) intents and purposes. Uh, Some of them, some of these teams could have shifted, but they did not. And they did not for Darlington specifically because of the tire wear that was to be expected. Lake Speed chose to remain on Hoosiers. He practiced just fine. He qualified eighth. And on race day, it appeared this wasn't much of a concern, uh, the tire wear. It was not a concern so much so that in the driver's meeting before the race, Dale Earnhardt walked up to Lake Speed and asked, okay, Speed, how long will it take you to lap me? Oh. And, and, and so at least in the eyes of Dale Earnhardt, who I, I think might be a pretty good scout of things, in his eyes, Lake Speed had the car to beat before the race even started. Secondly, 
Speed's primary competition that day sort of eliminated itself one by one. If uh, those in the know, like Dale Earnhardt, thought that Lake Speed was the favorite, those without knowledge thought that it was Kenny Schrader uh, who, who had the car to beat. And considering Schrader smashed the previous track record by three and a half miles per hour, and he was two miles per hour faster than second place qualifier Dale Earnhardt. Schrader lasted just 17 laps. He was involved in a dust-up with Alan Kowicki and Rick Wilson. Beyond that, Rusty Wallace, your guy, qualified fifth, guy. Suffered, suffered an engine failure, as did Ricky Rudd. Uh, for Rudd, that was one of 11 engine failures for him that year. And Mark Martin, who led 59 laps early in this race, uh, lost the handling balance of his car. Uh, he complained that it was far too tight, which if Mark Martin thought a car was too tight, that is saying something. So the depth of Lake Speed's competition that day became shallow. He led, uh, you, you mentioned the lap count, but I, I, I did it in mileage, 243 of the 500 total miles. Alan Kowicki and Davey Allison were the only other cars finishing on the lead lap. Dale Earnhardt finished four laps down. So certainly a, a strange race in that regard. But finally, and most importantly, Lake Speed, pretty good driver, right? He was a world-class kart racer. He defeated, among others, an 18-year-old Ayrton Senna to win the World Karting Championship. He's the first American to do so. Uh, it should be noted that Lake Speed was 30 at the time of this win. So a little more experience on his resume than what Senna had at the time. But Speed did not chase an open wheel career. He went into stock car racing. He never truly had tier one equipment for a long time. And an estimation of his production and equal equipment rating suggests that he had a rating better than his age's average for seven seasons prior to his age 40 season. Wow. His production rating over average, and I believe I pointed this out back on episode nine of Positive Regression, was a plus 0.042, suggesting that he was a slightly above average producer. A modern day counterpart with a similar rating, Jamie McMurray. Hmm. So it's fair to guess that with better equipment during what we know is his statistical prime, he would have won more races than just this one. Uh, he was not 39. He was 40 when he won at Darlington, uh, which we can now appreciate within the context of the race. As you said, not a fluke in the slightest. Good stuff. Good thorough uh, deep dive that we'll be starting out each episode with. And David, just looking back at the race and kind of putting my eye on it from the statistic-wise, uh, 14 of the 41 cars that day had a listed mechanical issue in the 500-mile event. So that just kind of screams old school to me, right? Engine issues, parts failing. Uh, that That's the old NASCAR, you know, some of us kind of like to point to when we turn, you know, in terms of equipment failing. And also, David, Richard Petty and Kyle Petty finished last and second to last, respectively, which has to be some sort of record, father and son, finishing the two final positions in a race. I don't know if it ever happened before, but that just struck my eye as a odd anomaly. So maybe it is. That is an oddity. That is a good poll. Um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe <laughs> some of our history buff listeners can, can, uh, prove that one. But in regards to just the mechanical failures, 
boy, the sport has come a long way. Yeah. It is impressive now that we are competing in 500 mile races at some pretty grueling tracks. Uh, it won't be 500 miles this weekend at Darlington, but it will be come fall time. Honestly, a, a mechanical DNF would be very unexpected. I mean, we're, we're within a Especially month. Especially for a big team. I mean, right? Yeah. For, for, a, for yeah. a top tier team. I mean, it rarely happens. Yeah. We're, yeah. Exactly. And we're in a month from, uh, the Coca-Cola 600. Again, it's a particularly grueling race. It's just going to be hard on a car. But the fact that we're just able to build cars that can withstand this kind of thing is pretty impressive. You know, I think that too, uh, the 24 hours of Daytona, some of these endurance races that we're seeing all across the world, how sturdy cars have become, how good me- uh, mechanics and engineers are for, for building these things that last. Um, it, it's, it's cool to end a race with 40 cars. That's, that is something to, to appreciate. It probably gets overlooked. Good stuff. All right. That was our new deep dive into the 1988 Darlington Spring Race episode 101 of Positive Regression. Let's get it started. David, let's fast forward to modern day. We are thinking ahead and thinking about 2021, but we're going to talk about pit stops now in this episode. And just up until this point of the season, David, you have been doing your research and looking at the data so we can uh, kind of put a, a number, if you will, or at least um, so some research into who is good and then have our discussion, David. So let's start with that. So far into the season, what do you look at and and how do we tell everyone who, who the good top pit crews so far in 2021? The good top pit crews. So I choose to evaluate, uh, through motorsports analytics, looking at median four tire box time and that's under green or under yellow, but it's only when the car is in the box, just evaluating what the pit crew is doing. And through the first quarter, first nine races of this year, the top five teams in terms of this speed and actually tell you what, I'm going to go in reverse order for dramatic effect here. Uh, (laughs) The number one Chip Ganassi racing team for Kurt Busch ranks as the fifth fastest in median four-tire box time. Fourth is the number five Hendrick Motorsports team of Kyle Larson. Third is the number four Stuart Haas racing team for Kevin Harvick. Second is the Joe Gibbs racing number 11 team for Denny Hamlin. And first from Hendrick Motorsports, the number 48 team belonging to Alex Bowman. All right, we've got some winners on that list. We have some top-tier teams on that list. Uh, the Kurt Busch one kind of stands out only because we've known some of the speed struggles that they've had, especially, what, at the 750 track? So uh, are, are they gaining him spots? Uh, is that a, Did that jump out to you to see the number one team having a, such a good year? It jumped out in this ranking specifically, but that the first part of the question, are they gaining him spots, the answer is actually a no. He's got a net loss of 35 positions. And that's something that we don't, I mean, I've harped on it in the past, but I want to focus on it here. We do uh, sometimes lose sight of what is important on a pit stop. These, these organizations, these teams are paying pit crew members to be fast, but the point of the pit stop isn't to be fast because if that was the case, everyone would come down on pit road uh, the fastest pit stop would just be rewarded the lead, and that's how you reward a fast pit stop, but that isn't the case. It's gains and losses positionally, right? We're looking for track position, and that's where things might not 
totally be on the level for some of these uh, some of these faster teams. And uh, Kurt Busch is one of them. We'll talk a little about why uh, a little bit later on. Uh, c- certainly, some things we can point to. But uh, you want to go over maybe some of the weaker pit crews because I found an interesting pattern. I wanted to absolutely. I mean, we talked about the good, right? Or at least what the the numbers say, uh, the data says about the good in terms of time in the box. Are, are, is there a converse of that, if you will? Is there another side of that? Okay, so this is surprising when you're looking at it on paper, but when you actually sit back and think a little bit about it, it isn't at all that surprising, right? Because there's only a finite number of quote-unquote fast pit crew members. So here it is. I mentioned that Denny Hamlin had the second fastest pit crew. Well, there are significant differences within stables and his stable Joe Gibbs racing is one of them. The other three JGR teams ranked 11th, 12th and 13th. And in fact, Christopher Bell's crew helped lose him 58 total spots. And that was the biggest loss under yellow among all teams the same dynamic exists with Stuart Haas Racing, Harvick's team, far and away the best. The 10 team of Eric Almarola ranks 14th. Uh, the 14 team for Chase Briscoe ranks 21st. The 41 team for Cole Custer ranks 26th. And this isn't solely for elites. There's a, a pretty wide gap between JTG Doherty's two teams. Ricky Stenhouse's number 47 ranks 15th in this metric whereas Ryan Priest's team ranks 29th. So the part that gets me, and I'm not sure that the philosophy is the same across the board, but there doesn't always seem to be a balance between pit crew talent. Uh, for years, uh, folks have wondered, do, do some drivers get a little bit better stuff, we'll say. We'll, we'll put stuff in air quotes. Uh, you know, for example, is, is Jimmy Johnson getting better stuff than Dale Earnhardt Jr. at Hendrick Motorsports? Well, we can't, can't retroactively figure that out. It might have been true, but I think the differences like the ones we're seeing here with the pit stop data that we can quantify suggest that yes, sometimes the best people are deliberately grouped together for a purpose or maybe accidentally. And perhaps the most competitive team gets that reward, uh, or the, the most likely, uh, champion among the bunch. And then sometimes there is some perceived balance. You wouldn't expect the 48 team to, uh, be given the best pit crew among the Hendrick quartet. Uh, but when you think about it, it's the pit crew and it's the crew chief, Greg Ives, as good a strategy as he is. This is that team's identity. And you wonder if that was a deliberate choice. So, David, those same, I don't know, strengths that that can help one team in an organization could also be a weakness for the others. I mean, is is that fair to say? Because if it's not equal, then then one will be the top. And I guess one team has to suffer or one one of the other teams of these mega teams has to be on the bottom, right? Yeah. And, and, or, I mean, or you can try to balance it out, right? And I think that at some point, because the decision makers for these teams will know what they have in regards to pit crew talent and they'll make those decisions accordingly. Do you want to balance across all of your teams or do you want one surefire team uh, to, to, to get the best people on the pit crew? If you think about 
the JTG Doherty situation where Ricky Stenhouse's pit crew is far better uh, than that of Ryan Priest, it it might be deliberate. Now, I, I believe that they get their pit crew from Joe Gibbs Racing. I might be incorrect about that. But let's consider something kind of simple. Ricky Stenhouse's team has a charter. Ryan Priest's does not. So if you know that going into a season – do you make the call in saying, okay, there is a tier one pit crew and a tier two pit crew, and this is how we're going to operate. You can understand a world in which that makes sense, but also it means that the two teams that you are trotting out onto the racetrack aren't knowingly equal. And that might also be the case across other organizations. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think that Joe Gibbs racing means for Hamlin to have this much of a better pit crew than others. They prefer Christopher Bell's team to not have a 58 position loss under yellow this season. That's a weakness, but that's also something that Adam Stevens is probably pulling his hair out over is I'm, I'm, I'm making these decisions and we're losing spots off of the racing surface. That is a problem. So for that team specifically, it's a weakness. Whereas for Denny Hamlin, it's a strength what we don't know is whether that was deliberate based on, I don't know, Hamlin being the most likely champion among those just those two specific teams. And let's touch on then what we were talking about before, David. What matters the most in terms of time in the box, a fast stop, or the gain loss, if you will, in terms of position? I remember one one time you saying, you know, it doesn't matter how fast your pit crew is because if if some jabroni takes two tires behind you, they've just got out in front of you. So you have lost positions if someone has taken two tires and you have the fastest four-tire pit crew in the world. It doesn't matter. You've lost track position. So uh, maybe that's I'm oversimplifying, but the question, though let's let's dive in and maybe you can explain it a bit more what matters more a fast stop or the gain and loss that that comes of that i think you i think you got it all actually i don't think i ever used the word jabroni that doesn't <laughs> no, sound you like didn't, you didn't but, let's be fair <laughs> yeah, but yeah but that no that's pretty good the, the success and the impact of a good pit stop is dependent on so many things uh one of them as you mentioned is the crew chief influence so the example that i use here the best pit stop of 2017 belonged to Matt Kenseth's pit crew at JGR. It took place at Richmond. He gave up the lead to pit under yellow. And because some other teams did not pit, he lost the lead. He never reacquired it. It was gone. That was kind of the end of his race. And thus, the fastest four-tire stop of the entire season yielded absolutely nothing. It did not factor into a result. And it can be argued that his race would have been better if it hadn't happened at all. So that's, <laughs> that's one thing that, that is one thing that you have to consider is that, okay, great. You, you had a fast pit stop, but also there's a decision that goes into it beforehand that makes this, you know, relevant or irrelevant. Another thing, the time differential required to actually overtake for a position. Because again, we are rewarding who gains and loses on pit road, not who actually has fast pit stops. I looked at this last year. Under caution, tire decisions even, it required, and this is a median, a stop that was 1.46 seconds better than the car running ahead of you in the order to overtake for that position. And again, that is a median. So there were some faster ones, there were some slower ones. But for the most part, that is the ballpark. And as these are 
human beings pushing a physical threshold, uh, the, the, the going fast, the changing tires fast, we do run up against a wall as to how fast they can actually achieve this. So the most likely scenario in being 1.46 seconds faster than your opponent isn't to be that much faster yourself. It's for your opponent to make a time-consuming error. Yes. That is what is required, and that is why this is dependent on another team's mistakes. I've heard Jeff Gordon say this before in terms of a a consistent pit crew and stop is more important than the fastest pit crew and stop, if you will. A mistake-free, consistent pit stop and crew is far more important, and I get what you're saying when you explain it that way. Yeah, mistake-free trumps fast, right? Like that's the, the, even, even the problem in achieving a fast pit stop might be that you're running a little too loose and that's when mistakes prop up. I, I would just prefer to be, as Jeff Gordon said, consistent. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, and then the last thing that we need to consider, Alan, for caution flag stops, what comes after them? Restarts. Mm. Years ago, Todd Parrott, was the crew chief for Dale Jarrett. They just won the championship in 1999, but he was sick of losing races to Jeff Gordon. He <laughs> I thought, know that feeling. <laughs> he, he thought that the team's weakness was his pit crew. And, and he, and he had a point. Uh, the, the, the numbers do jive with what he, what he felt. Um, he didn't have an especially good pit crew. It was very much mechanics on the car doing their thing. Jeff Gordon had a great pit crew. They were nicknamed the Rainbow Warriors. So Todd Parrott's idea, was to buy the Rainbow Warriors to come over to Robert Yates Racing. He signed five of them between 1999 and 2000, and it did. It shifted the dynamic between the two teams. The pit crew was no longer a strength for Jeff Gordon, and it was a more consistent part of Dale Jarrett's season. Now, this was, of course, before the double-file restart era. And of the many things double-file restarts have done, one of them is render pit crew impact less meaningful than it previously was. A poor restart can completely nullify a good stop. And a really good example of this, we saw last weekend at Kansas Speedway, Kurt Busch's team provided him five spots on one stop. Busch promptly lost all five spots on the restart. So this pit crew, which I mentioned, top five pit crew in the series, and they're probably paid like it as well, completely neutralized for that uh, one particular effort. Interesting. So you mentioned pay and salary, so maybe listeners can deduce where we're about to go next, David. The big (laughs) question, uh, which you've addressed before, and I've learned a lot from you, but it's important, and I wanted to make sure we reiterated it anytime we bring up a discussion about pit crews. Uh, This, let's just say, million-dollar pit crew, whatever, this this high-paid pit crew, given that there could be a driver, not necessarily always Kurt Busch because he's pretty good at it, but given that the driver may not be the best on restarts or given that you can just have your advantage simply taken by a crew chief making a two-tire decision or that your highly paid crew happens to be somewhat more mistake-prone than the one next to you, given all that, is it necessary to spend top dollar on the best pit crew if resources can be diverted elsewhere in terms of maybe gaining speed or what have you, is it worth it for to pay for the top pit crew? Hmm. I, you know, 
I, I think the correct answer is that a good pit crew hits differently. If you have a contending team, and I'm talking about contending for wins regularly across every kind of racetrack, contending for the championship perennially, then choosing to not spend on a pit crew is an oversight that could cost you all of those things for which you're competing. So if you are in Denny Hamlin's position, everything this year is is going well. I mean, he has speed. He has production. He's probably going to need a pit crew commensurate with what he is able to do on the racetrack. So that makes sense. But if your team isn't as competitive, and especially if the driver is a bad restarter, and knowing that the restart comes immediately after a caution flag, this probably isn't a good purchase. And I think this is where teams, I think, are getting a little bit more realistic with their spending. But it it is, it would be a good effort on pit road, completely gone in two labs. So what kind of purchase is that? <laughs> this is This is a weird example, but if a man without arms purchased a Rolex wristwatch? Oh my god. You would question that, right? <laughs> like it, it's it's cool that you're willing to spend on quality, but is this really a good use of your money? I, I think we have to think about those things. And that's kind of what this is. These fast pit crew guys can charge a pretty penny. Yeah. And that was one of the things that just in terms of how to get costs down, keep in mind, costs are being cut across the board, and I'm, I'm pretty sure pit crew pay is going to be a part of that. But where they were driven up were, were some of these pit crews. I mean, they were making mid-six figures, some of these guys, and some of them higher, and that's going to be more than some engineers. We've talked about this before on Paz Reg that – in terms of metrics that have the most correlation to success, it's speed. So you really want the folks touching the car, making it go fast, being rewarded. The pit crew is, at this point, I think it's almost a secondary luxury. Like I said, you know, if you are Hamlin and you are competing for this, if you're Kevin Harvick, it makes sense. Chase Elliott had the second fastest pit crew last season in his championship run-up. That's when the spend makes sense because, hey, you know, flags fly forever, rings bling forever, however, however, whatever you want to call it, right? But where, where that spending goes out of whack is when there is nothing else to redeem it, to, to make it seem necessary. And that's also where we saw costs driven up is because teams were spending beyond their means, certainly relative to what else they had on the racetrack, in the pit stall, things like that. And we can't forget, I mean, out this week, uh, by the time you hear this podcast, it will, uh, we will have seen the next generation car with the one lug nut, and that will alter pit stops for uh, the, the near future for a long time, I assume. So maybe we'll have this discussion again next season, David. Deal? Uh, yeah, that sounds good. All right. Good stuff. Great, great insight. Uh, something that affects, you know, we'll see a bunch of pit stops at Darlington this weekend and uh, over the 400 miles. So uh, something to think about every time they come down pit road. Good stuff. When your business is starting its championship run, nothing matters more than finding and hiring the best team. 
With Indeed, you have the power to build a dynasty by hiring more MVPs faster. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Offer valid through March 31st. If you're hiring, you need Indeed because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applicants that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. No matter how the last game went, anytime you take the field, you got a shot at greatness. Give your team the best shot at winning by recruiting more MVPs with Indeed. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. All right, let's get to it. Our Darlington preview for the weekend. David, it is Mother's Day weekend. It is throwback weekend. First time uh, having it uh, uh, during the spring race here in May, so that's always a fun time. Uh, we'll see a lot of cool paint schemes, and I'm sure people will dress up. It's always a fun vibe if you're down there. It's kind of like a something like a reunion if you've uh, ever had the privilege of going down to Darlington. It's pretty cool. Uh, so, David, to start our preview, you know, this has been a pit stop-themed episode. So let's talk about it at Darlington. How may pit stops impact this weekend's race? Because crew chiefs were saying to me, you know, they're going to use every set of tires that they have because it is Darlington and, and that rubber means something. So how do pit stops impact this weekend's race? Okay. So, all right. So tire strategy is a good thought. We'll, we'll get into that, but as to, uh, how the stops themselves or a lack thereof affect track position coming to pit road, Four tires or staying out, especially if it's a few cautions back to back. I'm thinking about the first stage in particular. This is where we're going to see maybe some separation occur. We could see teams skip on a stop altogether. If it's the competition yellow, if it's another yellow, if it's the stage break where, uh, just to see where they filter out on the racetrack with new track position. So not the speed of the stop per se. But the willingness to not stop might serve as a turning point. Kevin Harvick did this at Darlington. Not the first race. He won that one. But the second race after our, our COVID break, um, he, Rodney Childers made some key moves to get him that track position that he just was not getting. That's where we can see some, some interesting choices, uh, with, with, uh, whether to pit or not. Because that's, Something, uh, given the shift from 550 horsepower to 750 horsepower this weekend, this falls within a crew chief's control against a large set of unknowns. Um, I don't know about you. To me, this feels a little bit like uh, a mystery race this weekend, but the one thing that we can count on and one thing that we can assume crew chiefs can figure out is how to best get track position. Once they have it, they can figure out things from there and solve their mysteries uh, as intended, but it would be, you know, a better uh, trying to sleuth all that, that out if you had the track position. All right. Well, those are the pit stops. Uh, we, we, we kind of started with pit stops because that's been the theme of the show, but there was a big change this weekend, David. Yeah. Uh, Darlington will be, it was a 550 horsepower track the last few years, three races last year. Now it's a 750 horsepower track. And that's something we talk, you know, the differences and, and who excels and maybe struggles in the different engine packages, what have you. We talk a lot about that on this podcast. So it is a significant change. So, uh, David, I don't know if, you know, how you want 
to look at it just in terms of, of raw speed or performance, but who does this benefit and who do you think it hurts? And if we just want to look back to her last year, remember they had three races last year. Harvick dominated the first. There were a lot of parity a few days later in terms of laps led. Denny led the last 12 laps, won the race. And then there was the third race in the, in the fall. Truex dominated, but it was Harvick getting his second Darlington win of the season, uh, last year. That was 550. So those were the players last year. Do you think any of that changes this year with 750 package? That was a dandy recap and it might not matter, Alan. Uh, from, from, from those I've talked to this week, it sounds like what worked last year doesn't have relevance this season. This is a different beast. This is a big change. It's 200 more horsepower. It's going to be a completely different race. Uh, I suppose that we can look at 2018 before the horsepower reduction. Um, that was the last Darlington race at full-throated horsepower, but it's not going to be one for one. The one thing that stands apart about Darlington is that uh, it is grip-dependent and it is aero-dependent. And if that happens to be a strong suit for any team, really regardless of horsepower, then this weekend's race will probably go pretty well. That That's not going to be a thing that's going to elude the good teams. The unknown that we have to keep in mind is brake use. Brakes were hardly used at 550 horsepower at Darlington. That will not be the case uh, at 750 horsepower. That use... That heat around the brakes that will affect tire wear and tire degradation will be bigger this time around. Whereas in last year's fall race, all pit strategies were workable. That's not going to be the case on, on Sunday. Uh, drivers will need tires and from the sounds of it, they aren't getting as many sets as they had last season. They're going to get 11 sets of tires, which by comparison, uh, last year's return race after the COVID break, that was 400 miles, teams were given 12 sets of tires hmm. for a race where the degradation was not nearly as bad. Thank you, RTA. So that is interesting. <laughs> uh, I, it's going to be the tire management. It is very likely going to be the story in this one to the point that that's kind of the key to winning this race. So along with the change, you were mentioning the pit stops we talked about, but also restarts. You know, we, we talk a lot about restarts every week on positive regression. There are some names that rise under a 750 package. There are some names that, that excel at when, under a 550 horsepower package in terms of restarts. What we know about Darlington, say, from last year, the last few years, and, and the restart numbers, should we throw those out? What, what do you think? Do, do we have confidence in what the data that we have for Darlington restarts now? A little bit. A little bit of confidence. In 2017 and 2018, there were underlying themes, and they were that the first row was a little bit feisty at times uh, between the two spots, inside and outside. And all rows after that, the outside was dominant. The themes over the last two seasons at 550 horsepower the front row, a little feisty. All rows behind that outside was dominant. So if I'm making an educated guess, the themes will remain. The front row will see the biggest change. That throttle response from the car that isn't the leader, not dictating the restart, will be considerably different. 
in the 2020 fall race, we saw the outside car retain position 100% of the time compared to the inside's 25% rate. I doubt that we're going to see a retention discrepancy that dramatic. And it wouldn't shock me to see the inside of the first row not only prove useful, but given, again, the impact of what happens on the launch, leaders might pick it. We, we might we might see that decision. It was, uh, in 2018, the more frequently selected position among the two, uh, uh, the, among the leaders. So that might be the small change. I think the, the prevailing theory about Darlington that the outside is the best workable groove shall remain. All right, we'll keep an eye on that on Sunday. And some of you brought up, David, an interesting point. This is the last track with playoff representation we will see during the regular season. So, uh, I mean, this is a weird word, but does it... Does this mean this is the last relevant weekend in terms of the racing? You know, from this point forward, it's going to be road courses, 550 horsepower tracks. Uh, certainly, you know, wins and everything are good. You got to get points and everything. But if you're looking towards the playoffs, is this the last quote unquote relevant weekend for teams? What do you think to that? I think that if you've already made the playoffs, this is absolutely the case. Though to be fair, places like Nashville, Road America and Coda, uh, everyone's going to be experimenting across the board because no one truly knows, right? The, the simulators can help with that, but no one truly knows. So there's going to be a lot of experimentation there anyway. But if you do not already have a win and the playoff spot that comes with a win, then you had better be present during these <laughs> upcoming summer months because these are, um, I mean, these are, these are the pathway, right? There are styles of tracks that could translate to playoff relevance. If a road course gets you a win, and mind you, Chase Elliott is winless, then by all means, you better gear up for the road courses. But I think it's possible we see a changing of the guard for a little bit, a temporary change. But during these next few months after Darlington, um, because at least on paper, I see the the big tracks, uh, some, uh, some 550 tracks, especially the two-milers where SHR is well-suited. Yeah. Uh, Roush Fenway, has turned their attention this season to 550 tracks. If we were, uh, if we can believe what we're seeing from them speed wise, Chip Ganassi racing is significantly faster on 550 tracks than they are on 750 tracks. And for those programs, simply trying things out. And that's probably a, a, gen- a too generalized of a term, but if we can boil experimentation down to just that, I don't believe that it helps. Because without this upcoming stretch going well, there is no playoff to experiment for. All right. That's fair. I mean, look, it's obviously the last apples to apple comparison, if you will, you know, in terms of what you may be able to learn now and apply it to the playoff. If, as you said, our playoff team. And I just think about what we saw last year, you know, the dominance, uh, like you said, on the Michigan tracks, the, the Indianapolis uh, tracks of the world, Poconos. Uh, those all count for something, right? They count toward points, but you know, how much did they really help a team like Harvick in the playoffs, right? How much were they learning? Uh, you know, Denny ultimately had the, the fourth place car in Phoenix. You know, how much was gained from all the success there? Other than all the points, obviously, and all the success and winning. Yeah, that's good. But in terms of relevance and learning, uh, you know, what is learned if you are a playoff team? What is learned beyond this point? I think that's a fair question to ask. Yeah. And at that point, 
you know, if, if you are, if you are building a season in the hunt for a championship and to some degree they all are, but if we're being honest, some are more realistic efforts than others, then you know what tracks you're going to need. And that's the impetus behind Penske becoming 750 specialists. That's the reason Hendrick took a slow burn approach and, you know, it, I, I guess could say got lucky when the schedule skews, uh, regular season schedule skews road courses and the 750 tracks become more prominent. But one of the things that you have to consider is if that you aren't as traditionally good as those bigger teams, there is a pathway on the other tracks, the, um, the lesser thought of tracks now based on the schedule where you can go and get points. Uh, we've seen Austin Dillon do this all season long on 550 tracks. Michael McDowell can t- rank yeah. second yeah. in here on 550 tracks. He's already in the playoffs, but also uh, he's, I mean, he's established a specialty. So that is, that is a way that, you know, they're, they're, Everyone says there's more than one way to skin a cat. I don't know why everyone wants to skin cats, but, it's weird. but, there, but there are, but there are multiple paths to the playoffs and the tracks that we're going to see pop up in the summer months. We're going to see teams that might not have the financial wherewithal to stand out above, uh, richer teams, better established teams on the tracks that matter most, but is this where we can see teams pop up on two mile tracks, on 550 tracks, on road courses? Uh, yeah, it's sort of a market inefficiency, if you will, just to get into the playoffs, at which point they're going to have to deal with something else. But that playoff doesn't start unless they get things right for the regular season, which includes the tracks we're going to see this summer. Yeah. All right. We'll see how this plays out. All right. Let's get to it, David. Our picks to win Darlington on Sunday. Uh, I'll just go first because mine's kind of boring. I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm just, I may just pick Denny until he wins a damn race, but I'm going to go with Denny Hamlin. Uh, the numbers obviously are, look, we know how he's performing. We, we know why it's an easy pick, but look, 750 tracks, right? Motorsports analytics tells me he has the fastest 750 horsepower car. Uh, the type of, this is, and I also think it's a field pick for me, if you will. This is the type of track and race that just seems to go to good teams and drivers. So I think of Denny Hamlin. I think of, of certainly that a good driver, a good team at a tough track. Uh, th- th- I, I don't see much reason to pick against him. So it seems like the safest pick. I'm going with Denny Hamlin to win on Sunday. How about you? I will take a safe pick as well and say Joey Logano. Oh, okay. Uh, the most productive driver this season on 750 horsepower tracks, which tells me this is now a style of track Darlington Raceway that fits neatly into what Penske is doing well. I mentioned a lot of brake use that will cater to a driver uh, making it work to his advantage. I think there are a lot of drivers that will benefit from the horsepower shift. Hamlin's one of them. Chase Elliott could be another. That could be real. He is the breaking zone master, as Travis Geisler taught us. But I'm not going to pick against Logano. Um, he's he's the guy who's done it the best all season to this point. He's never won Darlington. Paul Wolf has, though. And I think Logano gets his first this weekend. Good stuff. Joey versus Denny. Never stops, does it, with those two. All right, those are our picks for the win. How about our contrarian performers, David? I'll go first on this one. I'll qualify it a little bit. 
my pick, I think, is one new, you know, I'm not going to contend for the win, but I believe it will perform above expectation. And by that, I'm talking about a car that is right now 20th in terms of speed on the 750 tracks and a driver who is uh, a negative passer so far on the 750 tracks, but a plus passer overall. David, I'm going with Eric Jones to be my contrarian performer this weekend. Again, I think this track rewards drivers who can handle it. And if you look at the numbers in the last five events here, Jones is second in points scored at Darlington. And I know it's a different equipment this year and all that stuff, but still second in points scored over the last five races. That includes a win. So I am calling for an above average performance this weekend from Eric Jones. He is my contrarian performer. So you're telling me that you're picking a driver who maybe this is his best racetrack and the horsepower shift actually suits him even more than it previously did? Hey, maybe I didn't know what I was doing. (laughs) I had my reasons. So yeah, maybe they were better than I thought. So I'm just absorbing these things. Yeah, he's my pick too. That's why I asked. Oh, yes! Yes! (laughs) Uh, yeah. Okay. So Eric, Eric Jones is splits this yes. year on, uh, 550 to 750 just in terms of peer, which are now posted on motorsportsanalytics.com. His 550 peer split is 0.250. His 750 peer split is 1.4. Hey, now that's kind of fun. Uh, yeah. The, the speed, the, the passing hasn't been there, but there's just something about this racetrack that suits Eric Jones's ability. He's already won here. It's similar, I think, to Winchester Speedway, uh, where Jones was a three or four time winner, the Winchester 400. Um, it, it, it just works, man. And, yeah, it's going to be tough sledding based on the team that he has given the speed that they've shown at Richard Petty Motorsports. But if he can pull a result out, as you said, better than expected, I think he's going to be fun to watch. And if I may, this is the best paint scheme that I've seen all week on social media. The tribute to John Andretti, but that is, it, it's just like a Richard Petty fire paint scheme and it looks kind of amazing. So, uh, I'm, I'm here for the whole visceral experience of it. Uh, I think Eric Jones is probably has this race circled on his calendar and I think he'll have a pretty good day. Good stuff. Makes me feel good when we have the same pick. Makes me feel like um, I'm learning something. You know, it only took a hundred episodes. All right. Good stuff. Another good episode. Episode 101 of Positive Regression. Do not forget we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, TuneIn, and YouTube. We're available no matter your device. Our entire back catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or review real quick or nice and easy. It really does help us spread the word. We notice it is so appreciated. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. We love answering them. It helps us, uh, you know, with content on the podcast. And we have a lot of smart listeners, which means a lot of smart questions that come in. Reach out to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on this week? This week on NBC Sports, a deep dive into what Chip Ganassi Racing has done and seems to be doing this season with Kurt Busch and Ross Chastain. There are strengths there. They just don't seem to be tapping into them right now. And uh, on Sunday, the usual, my Darlington race preview that will drop first thing in the morning. So follow me on Twitter at David Smith MA or log on to NASCAR dot NBC Sports 
com. Lots of good stuff there. Good stuff. Yeah, Ross Chastain has showed some speed or a little, at least a little pizzazz last week at Kansas. So I'm interested to see what your deep dive uh, says about that. Looking forward to it. Uh, David, uh, I've started doing uh, good videos and, and content for Speed Sport. It's really, it's it's expanding my mind across the, the racing platform. So after you listen to this podcast on Thursday morning, I hope, um, uh, go over, check my Twitter, go over Speed Sport and check out my, uh, we do quick hits videos now that come out Thursday, uh, previewing the uh, all the racing across America. You mentioned Winchester before, David. Uh, the USAC cars are back at Winchester uh, this weekend. I think for the first time in like 10 years, it's a big deal. They're going super fast. So we preview all sorts of racing across the country. Uh, every week we'll do that Thursdays and then Tuesdays we'll recap it with our gas and go segment. So make sure you check out uh, the videos and content for speed sport. Uh, give me some feedback on those because I hope to make them entertaining and informative for everybody out there. And, uh, just make sure we touch on every single kind of racing, uh, throughout America. So good stuff there. And then just make sure you follow me on social media at, at Alan Kavana, Facebook, all that stuff. So, uh, appreciate all the follows on there. David, it's been another fun episode, episode 101 of Positive Regression. I hope you have a great weekend. I hope all the listeners have a great weekend. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. We'll be back next week. Join Tubi in celebrating Black History Month with the largest free collection of black cinema streaming every day of the year, including exclusive Tubi originals, Howard High, and Pass the Mic. Tubi. Watch free.